This is the word of the Lord from Ruth, chapter 2. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the class of Elimelech, whose name was of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his, to the, to his young man, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping, and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered him, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and, when she, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought it out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, 
You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Marilyn. Before we look at the passage that Marilyn read for us, let me pray for our time. Our gracious and loving God, we thank you for your word that you reach out and speak to us. Your word is truth, it is the authority over our lives. And we delight to hear from our God. So Lord, speak to us today. Open our ears and open our hearts. That the words to which you have here for us would shape our lives. Lord, it is the very rule that we have for faith and life. Guide us in this time by your spirit. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen. Let's just take a, take a breath for a minute. And while you do, I want you to think about how many decisions you had to make before you stepped foot in church this morning. Just take a couple seconds. You probably had to decide if you were going to eat breakfast or not, or you going to do the cereal, or are you just going to grab a cup of coffee going out the door Do you have time to shower, or are you just throwing on deodorant and hitting the road? What are you going to wear? Do you set out the roast or the chicken for dinner? These aren't big, life-changing decisions. They're the ordinary kind of decisions that we make every day. It's not to say we don't have to make big decisions, right? What we're going to study in school, which job we might take where we're going to live, those types of decisions, they can, they can take our life in an entirely different direction. Choices can be exciting. They can also be crippling at times. We're so afraid of, of messing up. We think we, got, we have one shot. That's it. We have to get it right. And sadly, as Christians, we often times tried to hide the fear and anxiety of making decisions behind, uh, behind God. We use him as kind of a buffer of sorts. We tell people, I'm waiting on the Lord. I'm waiting for him to, to show me what I must do. We lay down our fleece, as it were. We're waiting for signs and affirmations of what God's will is for us. And please, you know, don't get me, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we shouldn't pray over choices in our life especially those big, life-altering decisions that we have to make. I'm not saying that we shouldn't use discernment or seek wisdom in making our decisions. I'm pointing out that at times we just use God as a scapegoat. We wrap up our hesitancy in pious language when decisions need to be made because we're afraid to move. I'm guilty of that. We left off last week talking about God's providence and how 
It's all over the book of Ruth. Providence, we said, is the way in which God purposely provides for, sustains, and governs the world. It's his active and intentional care to ensure that what he has promised actually does come to pass. It's an extension of God's sovereignty. God is in control of everything, but his control is ordered, and it's intentional, and it's good. Theologians will often call this God's will of decree. Everything that God ordains comes to pass according to his perfect will. But theologians will also talk about God's perceptive will. R.C. Sproul says it this way. He says, the perceptive will of God relates to the revealed commandments of God's published law. When God commands us not to steal, this decree does not always carry with it immediate consequences. An example, it wasn't possible for the light in creation to refuse to shine. It's impossible. But it is possible for us to refuse to obey God's commandment. If we wanted to, we could steal. If God's will of decree is how things are, his perceptive will is how things ought to be, it's the way he wants us to live. So I tell you this because Act 2 in Ruth, chapter 2, is littered with decisions, choices to be made. And grant, granted, they, they may seem small, they may seem unimpressive, but they're not insignificant. In fact, it serves as a reminder to us that small decisions to live for God are important. Small decisions to live for God are important. It's important for us to think about our ordinary, everyday conversations and interactions with people and how they glorify God. It's important to think about acts of love and hospitality towards others, what we talked about last week, reaching out for people and how they glorify God. It's important to think about the small acts of devotion in our private lives and how they glorify God. All of these decisions are important. We're going to spend some time in chapter 2 today looking at the decisions that are made by the characters here that we find, Ruth, Boaz. And we'll look at them in a few ways. First, a providential venture, and second, a gracious encounter, and finally, hope in a redeemer. Small decisions to live for God matter. Let's start by looking at Ruth 2, verses 1 through 7. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And Naomi said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and she went and she gleaned in the field after the reapers and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now except for a short rest. If you remember last week, 
As Act 1 came to a close, Naomi and Ruth left Moab, and they returned to Bethlehem. And upon arrival, Naomi is met by the women of the city who are asking, Naomi? Is that, is that you? And Naomi responds almost as if to say, who's Naomi? Call me Mara, call me bitter, for God has dealt very bitterly with me. Naomi returns from Moab bitter and empty, having lost her husband, her two sons, and she says, God, the Lord Almighty has done this to me. No, Naomi's in a very dark place when Act 2 begins. And what about Ruth? Seeing her mother-in-law this way, what's she to do? If you remember in Act 1, Ruth took an oath in the name of the Lord to commit herself completely to Naomi, whatever the cost. And we can only presume that this oath is in Ruth's mind as she says to Naomi, let me, let me go out into the fields. Let me see if I can get some food for us. Maybe someone will be gracious enough to let me gather some food. And so we see the first decision being made. Ruth, out of love and commitment to her mother-in-law, to keep the oath that she made before God, goes off into the field. And gleaning, that was a welcome practice in Israel. It's just picking up whatever the reapers drop as they harvest the field. We would expect Naomi to be, you know, being an Israelite to, to know this, but the text is really unclear whether she or Ruth knew about this. It almost seems that Ruth is just kind of on a whim going out to see what, what happens. Our God is a God of love and compassion, and he continues to point this out to us, even in the most dense and difficult portions of Scripture, portions like the book of Leviticus that we might not venture into very often. But in Leviticus 19, verses 9 and 10, God shows us his care and his concern for the most overlooked and marginalized people, the poor and foreigners. And God's people were to model this same concern that God had for these sorts of people. Even when they were harvesting their fields, God says, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to the edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Again, in Deuteronomy 24, we hear the Lord say, When you reap the harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back and get it. It shall be for the sojourner and the fatherless and the widow that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. So this venture that Ruth is setting out on was, was a welcome practice in Israel. But this might not be so cut and dry as we might think. We'll see that in just a moment. But I want to point out to you what happens next in the text. We see just a fingerprint from God's hidden hand as he guides and directs Ruth in this story. We read in verse 3 that so she, sent at, she set out and she went and she gleaned in the field after the reapers and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was part of the clan of Elimelech. The author sets us up for this encounter with Boaz in the very first verse 
chapter 2, verse 1, when Boaz is first introduced. But the real jewel of this verse comes with a few short words, and she happened. And she happened. It's not so clear in our English Bibles, but the, the Hebrew is constructed in such a way as to emphasize the unexpected and unplanned nature of Ruth's choice to go and to glean in the fields that day. Ruth took the first step, but the Lord made it so that she would make her way to Boaz's field. And I find as I talk to a lot of folks, the question comes up eventually regarding sovereignty. If God is in control of everything, how can we truly be free to think and to make choices for ourselves? In fact, if you're, if you're a fan of Marvel, if you're watching any of the, the new Loki series on Disney+, Plus, this very question is brought up in the show. If there is a grand plan, is mankind really free? And scripture tells us without question that yes, we are free. God is sovereign. He is working out his grand plan for the redemption and restoration of all things through Jesus Christ, a plan that will not and cannot be altered but at the same time affirms that you and I are free to make choices and decisions and that those choices and decisions have outcomes, both good and bad. We're responsible for the choices that we make. A.W. Tozer in his book, Knowledge of the Holy, gives this illustration. He talks about an ocean liner leaving from New York bound for Liverpool. Its destination has been determined by proper authorities. Nothing can change it. This is at least a faint picture of sovereignty. But on board that liner, there's numerous passengers. They're not in chains. They're not bound. They're free to do what they want while they're on, on the ocean liner. They eat and sleep and they play and they lounge. They read and talk all together as they please. But all the while, that great ocean liner is carrying them steadily towards a predetermined port. Both freedom and sovereignty are present here. They do not contradict themselves. And this is the picture that we see in Ruth too. Ruth chooses to keep her oath, to commit herself to Naomi, to venture out and find food. But God in his providence brings her to the field of Boaz, an encounter that keeps the ocean liner moving forward, so to speak, in God's grand plan of redemption. So Ruth, by God's hand, finds her way to Boaz's field. But who's Boaz? As we said, chapter 2, 1 introduces him. He's a family member of Naomi on Elimelech's side. He's a worthy man, likely a man of means. We see this in the fact that he owns land. He has a staff that helps him work uh, his land. And not only that, he seems to be a man of God. He uses the covenant name of the Lord as he interacts with his, with his staff and by all appearances, he seems to have a good relationship with them. They talk, have conversation. He provides them with a bountiful lunch, as we'll see later on. All in all, Boaz seems like an upstanding, well-respected guy. And one of the reasons we can tell that he knows his staff, he knows his people, is because when he comes to the field that day and he talks with his foreman, he notices right away a young woman that he has never seen before. And he goes up to his foreman and he asks, well, whose who's young woman is this? 
To which the foreman replies, well, she, she's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She asks if she could glean and gather in the field. She's been here all day. Now Boaz has a decision to make. What's he going to do with this young Moabite woman who's working in his fields? We see their encounter unfold beginning in verse 8. Boaz says to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessel and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me? since I am a foreigner. There's something about this conversation that already seems confusing. How are we supposed to understand Ruth's comment in verse 10? Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? Wasn't Ruth allowed to be there gleaning in the fields? Let's point out a few things. In the Old Testament scriptures, we find two groups of others. Maybe, maybe that might bring up flashbacks of watching Lost, but there, there's two groups of others. Um, those who, who could come in and be part of God's people, Israel, and those who can't. In the passages that we read earlier from Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 24, we find the word sojourner. And that's a translation of the Hebrew word that refers to a protected class of included others those who could come in and be part of Israel. There's another passage in Deuteronomy, chapter 23, that gives us some more information about these two groups. Deuteronomy 23, verses 3 through 8, it says this, No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came up out of Egypt, because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pathor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. But the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you, because the Lord your God loved you. You shall not seek their peace or their prosperity all the days, all your days forever." You shall not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother. You shall not abhor an Egyptian, because you were a sojourner in his land. Children born to them in the third generation may enter into the assembly of the Lord. We're thinking, well, what does that all mean? Well, we might read this from just the very first verse and say, no Ammonite or Moabite. Well, maybe Ruth, the Moabite, really is out of place here in Boaz's field. Maybe she doesn't belong here. In fact, Ruth identifies herself as a foreigner. And the word that Ruth uses of herself here in chapter 2, verse 10, is a word for an excluded other, those who were not allowed. If we read Deuteronomy 24 again closely, we see that the rationale for the law isn't grounded in genealogy, and it's not grounded in ethnicity. 
It speaks about the treachery of Moab towards Israel and their intentions to harm them. Based on what we know about Boaz, I don't think it's out of line to believe that he knew his Torah. He knew the law of God. He likely knew the passages. There's more than just what we read about the included and excluded others. And I think it's important for us to see that in this passage, in the larger context, Boaz is not disregarding the law of God. Rather, he's interpreting it. He's putting God's word to work to determine how he should live in this moment for the Lord. In the Westminster Larger Catechism, one of the confessional documents of Presbyterianism, question three asks, what is the word of God? And they answer it this way, the holy scriptures of the Old and the New Testament are the word of God, the only rule of faith and obedience. That is, God's word not only reveals what we should believe about God, his will, and what is necessary for salvation, but it reveals to us how we are to live. Sometimes that's obvious. To use the example that we used before, God says, do not steal. We know that we should not steal. Other times, it takes more discernment, and it truly takes the Spirit's guidance to know how how God's word ought to be applied in the day-to-day situations of our lives. Because there's one truth, it's God's truth, and we should seek to apply it faithfully in all areas of life as Boaz seeks to do here. So how does Boaz apply God's word in this moment concerning this young Moabite woman standing in his field? We see he comes alongside Ruth, and he takes her in, and he protects her, and he cares for her. And he includes her. And these acts of grace, overcome, or Ruth is overcome by them. Why have I found favor in your eyes? Why are you not treating me like an outsider? And Boaz says, because I've heard of everything that you've done for your mother-in-law. Since the death of your husband, it has all been told to me how you left your father and your mother, your native land. You came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. In the words of one of my Old Testament professors, Dr. Gary Schnicker, he says, Boaz's comments go well beyond the idea that Ruth showed hospitality in getting grain for Naomi in contrast to her forefathers, as it were, from Moab and their interaction with Israel. Boaz refers back to something that Ruth had already done, namely her oath, that commitment that she made, your people will be my people, your God will be my God. Setting aside labels, we notice that Boaz grounds his informal legal decision on Ruth's commitment of coming under the wings of the Lord. Boaz's conclusion that Ruth should enjoy the rights of gleaning like any other residing foreigner starts with her prior covenantal commitment to take Yahweh as her God and Israel as her people. There is an important interpretive movement in this passage that we come to find all over the Old Testament and on into the New. And it's this idea that perhaps not all Moabites are Moabites. Or we should say, perhaps not all those who appear to be outsiders are outsiders. Do you remember 
Jesus tells this story. I think it's appropriate for this application in Luke 14. A man gives a great banquet feast and he invites many to it. And when the time came for the banquet, he sent out his servant to go and to bring in all the people that he invited. But each one had an excuse and they turned down the invitation. So the master of the house told him, go out to the streets and to the lanes of the city. Invite the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And his servant does and he reports back and said, there's still more room. So he tells him, go to the highways, go to the hedges, invite people to come in that my house would be full. And I think that's what we see here in Ruth too. Boaz extending to Ruth the welcome into gospel community. It's the same welcome that we receive from Jesus, the master of the house, who says, all who are near and far off, come in, come to my banquet. Sit at my table where you find grace and peace and rest and forgiveness and life. There's an intersection here of two ideas. It's what the theologian Francis Schaeffer called the orthodoxy of doctrine and the orthodoxy of community. Schaefer writes that by the grace of God, the church must be known simultaneously for its purity of doctrine and the reality of its community. Our churches have so often been only preaching points with very little emphasis on community. But exhibition of love of God in practice is beautiful and it has to be there. And this is what we see from Boaz. He asks the doctor in question, What does God say? What is true? He asks the community question, how must I live? How must my life and the community of which I am a part be a reflection of gospel truth? And so he extends the invitation to Ruth to come and to sit at his table, realizing that it's not not Boaz whose eyes she's found favor in, but it is the Lord's eyes whom she has found favor in. So he invites her in to sit at his table, to enjoy the the satisfaction of fellowship as she takes refuge in the Lord. And there are questions here for us. How are our lives and our community here at PCKS a reflection of the grace that we find in Jesus? How are we showing the beauty of true forgiveness that comes from the shed blood of Christ for sinners? How are we extending the invitation to all those who are near and far off, those who are often overlooked or turned away, that they would come in and hear the greatest news that they could ever hear of a God who loves them more than they deserve and more than they could possibly imagine? I was encouraged this week by a note from our our missions committee. It was actually passed on, it was a letter from our our partners, Fred and Dana Andre, who serve with Bridges International. They work with international students in the Washington, Baltimore area. And so Fred and Dana, they had just hosted um, a welcome picnic for 150 new international students. And those 150 students, they found found out about their group, they write, through, through one student. Through one student who Fred and Dana met this summer in a conversational English class. And at the picnic, 39 students signed up to have dinner in an American home. 
Seven signed up to attend church with them today. As encouraging as that gospel invitation is, I'm just as, if not more, encouraged by all of you. I'm encouraged by those of you who are reaching out to Lincoln students with the truth and the beauty of the gospel. Those of you who are reaching out to friends and neighbors, offering that invitation to come and taste and see that the Lord is good. I'm encouraged by you who are reaching out to younger generations out into your community, encouraged by you because when these two ideas come together that Schaefer talks about, orthodox doctrine and orthodox community, and they must be together, they have to be together, the result is a powerful picture of the kingdom of God. And that is what the church is, is supposed to look like. The truth of the gospel lived out in community. By this time, though, in our passage, it has certainly been a long and eventful day for Ruth. She finishes her work before returning to Naomi with what she's gleaned for the day. Also, she brings home some, some leftovers from that gracious lunch Boaz had provided. And the two of them talk, and they catch up. And Naomi asks, where did you glean today? Where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So Ruth tells her mother-in-law that she worked for Boaz. And Naomi, her daughter, and Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all of my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter. It is good that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. We recall how at the end of Act 1, in the beginning of Act 2, Naomi was in a pretty dark place. She felt the Lord was against her. She was wrapped up in bitterness, consumed by emptiness. But as she hears about Ruth's day and all that took place, how she met a man named Boaz and worked in his field, Naomi's demeanor completely changes almost as if she's beginning to connect the dots in her head, stringing together the possibilities of this providential encounter that happened out in the field. And we read what seems to be a shocking remark from Naomi, considering her state. In verse 20, she says, May he, Boaz, be blessed by the Lord, the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. That word kindness is the same word kindness that we thought about last week. It comes from that word hesed, that word that wraps up all of the positive attributes of God. Perhaps through this providential encounter, the Lord has proven to Naomi that he is not against her. He has not left her alone. That there is in fact a reason to hope for she and Ruth have a redeemer in Boaz. 
And with this Ruth, Naomi must now make a decision. How will she seek the wellness and rest of her daughter Ruth? It's a decision we'll have to spend more time looking at next week. But for now, it's enough to say that the choices that we make matter. The little decisions to live for God are important, as we've seen through the lives of Ruth and Boaz this morning. And as we've looked at this passage, may it be an encouragement and a reminder for us to make our little decisions for God matter this week. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we are thankful for the ways in which you work in the details of our lives. Lord, we are so blind to this, but Lord, if we're reminded of anything from this passage, we're reminded that you work for good. Help us, Father, to think back, to see where your fingerprints have been on our lives as you have moved us forward. And Father, we pray for your help, that we would be a people both of truth, that live by your word, that seek to apply it in all the situations of life, but that are also deeply committed to seeing that truth lived out in community and in fellowship, that truly the gospel would be not just something that we know, but something that is seen and witnessed in a powerful way. Lord, in all of our interactions, decisions that we have to make this week, guide us by your spirit that we may truly live for you in all that we do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.